2: Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 932. This episode brought to you by Squarespace. Destiny is calling. And Destiny is saying, you need a new website. Why is Destiny nagging you? Because it wants you to make a thing and it wants you to do it at Squarespace. Turn your idea into a new website. Showcase your work. You can publish, uh, you can blog, you can sell products, you can sell services, announce events... Whatever it is, Squarespace does this by giving you beautiful templates created by world-class designers, very powerful e-commerce functionality, which lets you sell anything online. You can customize the look, feel, settings, products, just a few clicks. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. It's a new way to buy domains and choose from over 200 extensions. And analytics to help you grow in real time. There's built-in SEO, free and secure hosting, nothing to patch or upgrade, and 24-7 award-winning customer support. Make it stand out. Stand out with a beautiful website. Katie, these website things, they're here to stay.
1: They're a little important.
2: (laughs) A little bit. That needs to be be their tagline. Websites. Websites. They're a little important. important. Check out Squarespace.com for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code ID10T, that's ID, the number 10 in T, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Just imagine 10 in ID10T and 10%. That's how that works. That's serendipity. 10 and 10. 10 and 10.
1: Still equals 10.
2: 10 for (laughs) 10. Let's see. What's going on on the corkboard? Well, I'm going to be performing at the Brea Improv uh, this weekend, which is February, I think, 16, 17. And then the following weekend at Levity Live in Oxnard. Just... Google it. Uh, <laughs> what do you have on the corkboard?
1: Well, first, all, I want to remind people we have a new corkboard email. It's corkboard at id10t.com. And then uh, this one is actually something I found that I just thought was so cool. I wanted to share. So I recently bought a cast iron pan and I had to get a skillet mitt for it. Okay. And so I went on Etsy to look for some and I found this, this shop called Collisionware, run by this woman who makes the greatest oven mitts, pot holders, skillet mitts, everything. Ever like they she has so many different fabrics. They're all super cute. Okay. Mine has a little baby bears and deer all over it and foxes. And uh, I just wanted to share it because I love it so much. And it's uh, Etsy dot com slash shop slash collision and that's W.A.R.E. I also want to plug Pete Holmes' show, Crashing, on HBO Do it, plug on Sunday it. nights. This this Sunday is a really important episode to Pete. He's trying to get as many people as he can to watch it. He he's, he really is hoping to get picked up for a season three. So please watch Crashing this Sunday night because it's going to be a really fun and important episode.
2: Make it Pete. weird and watch Crashing. Yeah, watch Pete Holmes. Watch, watch your it. buddy Pete Holmes. Everyone loves Pete. Make a thing. Um, this episode is. Uh, a, a dear old friend, not old, he's not old. I mean, it's like we've been friends for a long time, John August. Uh, we've been friends for a couple decades now. John August is an amazing writer. Just go, just look at IMDb and all the yeah. <laughs> insane stuff that he's written. Um, but... Not only uh, is he just a really sweet guy and a really interesting writer, but he also – I'm sorry. Not only is he a really sweet guy and incredibly talented writer, but he's also an excellent communicator for the writing process. So he has been online – Basically counseling, you know, writers and young writers for years and years and years and years since blogging was ever a thing. And uh, he is so, so, so incisive and smart and has such great ideas. Uh, he has written a novel called Arlo Finch in the Valley of Fire. And his new podcast, Launch, is on Wondery. And uh, and it's all about how he wrote this book and a lot of his writing process. So uh, go listen to that and enjoy his book and all of his movie projects. And, uh, and enjoy him now on the ID10T podcast number 932. It's August and February. I'm a moron. Initiating ID10T protocol. In the beginning, there were a few of, like, the handheld, like, Tascam or oh, yeah. Sony, you know, but they were really for, like, serious... Yeah, like, production sound mixers. Very yeah. serious production sound mixers. And, yeah, Zoom had been around for a couple of years, and it was just one of those things where, like, Oh well, these are inexpensive. Yeah. Oh my God, they sound amazing. They sound really good. And uh, like even the Zoom, the, 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 even the even the H1, mm-hmm. which is like yeah. the the that old old yeah. one, still sounds good. It's tiny and sounds great. So uh, yeah, they've done a they've done a good job. Way way to go, Zoom Capital. And now you now you see like the H4 ns mm-hmm. on boomsticks totally. Like yeah. people use them on production, or, or they
3: mount them like to a DSLR as like the actual production sound. Like yeah, they'll, they'll sl- slot it in there. So
2: yeah, boy, I. Really wish I'd been smart enough back in those days to go. Maybe I should see if I can invest in this company. That'd be great. Yeah, you know, I just wasn't. Well, the question is, what are the things
3: right now that you're using that you don't? You're not thinking to, to invest in. That's the question. Because <laughs> there's got to be something like you know, like oh, that's really great, and you don't think to invest in. it.
2: You know what? Time with other people in real life. Oh, come on, you guys. What is yes. the night? Nice... <laughs> that's actually not true. No, it is true. I do. You know, I don't know if I... Because you have a 12-year-old and you're very busy. Do you have to force yourself to go out? Or do you, you Yeah, kind so of- for the first couple of years of my daughter's life, we would do
3: the thing where we had a standing sort of date night. So on Tuesday nights and Saturday nights, we'd always have a sitter. So we would like feel kind of forced to leave the house and go out and do stuff. And uh, then we moved away to Paris for a year. And we just moved back. Over the summer, fancy! Which was fancy. So we moved back and we sort of got rid of our nanny to do that, that sort of like the date night thing. And I do miss
2: it. It was great. Well, what's the, it, and it sounds unsexy as a process, but when you get older, you kind of do have to schedule like date nights and leisure time and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Where oh, you, yeah. Cause otherwise you just won't, you just don't think to do it or you'll get caught up. Yeah. The inertia of just staying put, I mean, it's <laughs> what's, what's
3: going to happen. And they're like, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. But if you had, like, if you already have a sitter coming yep. I'm just like, okay, no, we're going to at least go out to dinner and like have a conversation that is not involved sort of like, you know. Diapers and
1: such
2: things. <laughs> I know. Well, we're not at the diaper conversations yet. Yeah, but we've only been married a year. Congratulations on getting married, by the way. Thanks. Um, on Instagram, it looked beautiful. Oh, it was incredible. It was great. I. It was the best wedding I've ever been to. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if I was like? It was the third best yeah. wedding I've ever been yeah. to. No, it really was though. It really, I mean, I, I think we really did our best to. Try to imagine what it was like for the wedding attendee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have which, to. which I think sometimes isn't always the case. Or it's like, oh, you got to go to France for this wedding, and then you got to buy this certain clothing. And Absolutely, there's the color scheme. Yeah, there's like, you got to the color scheme, and you got to, you know. And so we did. We were like, quick ceremony. That you know, cocktail pre party, quick ceremony, right to the party. No speeches. No, no. phones. Oh, nice. We did No Phones, and it was great. Yeah. It was really great. Yeah, that's great. Um, I have no... This is just for the audience. It's not like I'm telling you something you already know. (laughs) I've known you for 20 years. Yes. Um, I met you when you were writing a show called DC Mm -hmm. that my uh, ex-girlfriend Jacinda was on, and you were writing that, and you... At that point, you had... Go already had come out, as far as I, I remember. Yeah, Go had Go had come out uh, already. Go is a great fucking movie. Thank you very much. It was the like first movie. Yeah. Holds up. Go holds up. Yeah, thank you. And what a cast. No, we had a ridiculously good cast. Tim <laughs> Olyphant, mm-hmm. Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. like her first movie role. Yes. And she was great. She's fantastic. Uh, you got Scott Wolfe. Scott Wolfe, Sarah Polly. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is Tay Diggs. Tay Diggs. And Go is also, uh, was very much, it, it just, it captured a certain vibe of the moment, but the movie is still, like it's, there's some movies when you look back and you go, oh, I don't know, that's really just for that period of mm-hmm. time. And Go really holds up. You did such a great job Thank with you it. I was so, so happy. I'll say it. one thing that I mean, it's very true to
3: the time. But I, when younger people watch the movie, they're like, "Well, why doesn't she just like call?" <laughs> <up?"> <laughs> okay, so, well, there's yeah. that. and so people say, "Like, well, didn't they have cell phones?" And like, they don't. It's hard to explain. Like, cell phones were a brand new thing. And so, like, you know, Adam and Zach they would have a cell phone because they were just rich enough
2: to have a cell phone. But right. like,
3: Sarah Paul's character would not have had a cell phone no. at that age. And, uh, at a time, they
2: were shockingly expensive, and then you had to n- navigate the like. All right, so it's twenty-five cents a minute, mm-hmm. and I'll you know I'm I'm I'll pay a ton of money. Just to, you know, and who am I going to call? Like they're, you know, yeah. a drug dealer perhaps yeah. or a business person. Yeah, that's it. Not that drug dealers aren't business people. They just operate. We're all small businesses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're entrepreneurs with a little bit extra, a little bit extra go, I guess. I don't know. But the, but that movie was great and, and the the tone of it was so great. But, and, and I, I kind of want to walk people through, because the other reason I'm excited to have you on the podcast is you're, you're also re- a, a fantastic kind of unofficial educator oh, at, at the same time, and you have, uh you know like you shared your knowledge for so long on what we formerly called weblogs. Yes. And uh, and so and now you're doing a podcast and but you've written so many great things that I'm sure people know. But go was your first. Go, thing. go was the first, and then the second thing I was actually in production on was
3: DC this this television show that Jacinda was on. Dick Wolf, Dick, me and Dick Wolf. And so the real show should have been me and Dick Wolf, like <laughs> shouting at each other full volume <laughs> down hallways. It was. And so you saw me during sort of that 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 long extended car crash of that TV show, and I just loved this cast. I loved the writers I had, but. It was it, the show should never have happened, and so you, you and I would be flying up to Toronto. You'd be up to, there to visit Jacinda. I'd be yeah. up there to visit the set, and uh, I think you saw like I was just melting down. Like I could not handle the stress of it all, and I'm trying to juggle all these things and keep this show in the air. And it was just I was having these out of body experiences where like I was watching myself have these conversations, yet the real John August was somewhere else. Just Observing the whole thing.
2: Now, what were they sort of forcing you to try to do? What was the what was the toxic nature of it? I think some of it is just the nature
3: of trying to do a full on series, and so I had no experience trying to like run a writing staff, how to you know run post, and then we had this crazy idea that okay, well, we want to shoot exteriors in DC, so in order to be able to do that, we had to shoot cheaper in Toronto, and so we would fly this triangle of like I would go to Toronto, then to DC, then back to Los Angeles. And I, would, I was trying to do all this while writing the show, and um, it just didn't
2: work. And this was for the WB, was that correct? Yeah, it was for the WB. It was one of the last shows for the WB. Before it became the CW. Yeah. yeah, so the WB. So basically it was a it was a, a group of 20-somethings who were kind of living, loving, working in Washington. Mm-hmm. Dick Wolf, of course, tremendous success uh, with Law & Order. Yeah. And then it was sort of his foray into can I do programming for younger people on a different network? Mm -hmm. And then it didn't work. And then he just went back and made a ton of more law and orders. Yeah. So it was a question of like, you know, could you, it's basically Felicity
3: after college was sort of the pitch for the show. right? And, uh, you know, I was a, probably a pretty good person to write that show. Dick Wolf was not a good partner for me to be wor- working on that show with, and we just never saw eye to eye. And so <laughs> uh, it was really rough. So I remember getting off one of those flights from DC and getting the call from agents that they'd fired me and just feeling such tremendous relief. <laughs> just, just, uh, just that, like, you know, just all this weight had, had come off me. And uh, I mean, I felt bad for the people who were still stuck on the show, like Melissa McCarthy, who had cast on the show and was stuck on the show that she never wanted to be on. Right. But, uh, and Jacinda and everyone else. But I was free, and I just, it was
2: great. You know, I, lo- uh, I mean, I when I first met Melissa, you know, she was Missy. Mm-hmm. And she, because she was Jenny mm-hmm. McCarthy's cousin, mm-hmm. she came out and she was basically a PA on Jenny's sketch show yeah. at MTV. And I remember meeting her and hanging out with her and just being like, holy, you're so fucking funny. Like, she was legit funny. And then finding out, like, oh, she had all this insane improv and sketch training in Chicago. And... Just sort of feeling like, shouldn't you kind of have a sketch going? Yeah. and then now, of course, there she's one of the most famous mm-hmm. people in the comedy people in the world. Yeah, and that that was always a story that made me happy because I felt like, aha, the universe does reward funny. It does reward talented people, and she, you know, but seeing her and even in that tiny scene she had in Go. Oh yeah, she made it. She hilarious. killed it. With she Just killed. a tiny little thing.
3: So right after Go, um, you know. I wasn't there when we shot her scene, but I saw the dailies. I'm like, oh my God, she's fantastic. So I, I, I sort of hunted her down. I found her at a Starbucks uh, in my neighborhood. It turned out she lived in my neighborhood. And I said, like, I'm writing a short for for us to make together. And so I did that. And that was a little short called God. And that became her reel for a while. And that sort of, sort of got her um, onto Gilmore Girls and other stuff. And like, people loved that tape and just passed it around. And uh, then I was able to make a movie with her later on. And she's just the best. And when good things happen to good people... It just it does give you some faith in the universe that things work out right.
2: Yeah, because it's nice. it's always the thing that one of the things that I really do enjoy is watching, you know, everyone that you knew very early on, and just not only watching them blossom, but but in the ways that they blossom, mm-hmm. and like, oh, how are they going to express their talent? What what little corner of the business are they going to find? And. You know, watching the rest of the world kind of discover this thing that you already knew, which Mm -hmm. is this person is a gem. It's an undiscovered gem. And then seeing that really, really hit is uh, I mean, is is that part of the fun process for you as a writer is sort of is discovering that that stratum of, of creative types? I always love
3: sort of watching people who I know are going to make it, and sort of you sort of recognize the patterns of like, okay, I see what you're doing. The thing you're doing is really good. People are going to notice that it's really good. But you're also you're not waiting around to be lucky. You are going out there and you are putting yourself in places where people can discover how good you are. Right. And that's amazing. So I've been lucky that some of my former assistants have gone on to do amazing things, like Rostin Thurber um ended up doing um, Dodgeball. Mm-hmm. He did the um, the Terry Tate office linebacker commercial, which mm-hmm. was the sort of breakout thing. But I remember sort of him going through and sort of just working and iterating on these ideas and like figuring out what unique thing does he have to say. And once he figured out that, that his sort of little space, he was not afraid to sort of put it out there and, and just shoot it and find a way to make it. And I think so many people talk about like, oh, one day I'm going to do this thing. It's the people who actually just do the thing Uh, That sort of make their next one
2: days (laughs) I always bug people about that in the show I'm just like, make your thing, make your goddamn thing Mm -hmm. But it, uh, as a writer I feel like you have a little bit of an edge Over someone who is an actor Mm -hmm. say, Because if you're a writer Technically, you can just go to Starbucks and write yeah, it's like you can't go Starbucks and start
3: acting. No, I mean writers need no permission to do their craft, which is great. And so People
2: forget that though.
3: Yeah, but so I remember that originally I perceived you only as a performer because I'd seen you as a game show host, mm-hmm. and then it wasn't until I, I was reading a good article in Wired. I'm like, oh, this is really good. And I flip back, I was like, oh, Chris wrote this. <laughs> uh, that I realized, like, oh, you're actually a writer. And like, and I don't even know when that transition happened, but like, you sort of figured out who you were after. I sort of first met you. and then Oh, yeah, yeah. It was it. after. It was way after. It was like 10 years after. And so I remember, like, you and I had... I think I emailed you, and then we ended up having like a lunch or something at BLD and yeah. sort of catching up a little bit, and then yeah, I yeah. bumped into Chipotle and other places. And it was always been great to see, like, oh, yeah, this is a guy who figured out who he is and how to do the things he really loves and make that his career. And it's
2: it's been great to watch it. Well I appreciate that. It it but saying before about asking for permission, it was just it was weirdly something that didn't occur to me that I could do until like thirteen years into my career. I do I do credit the internet with Yeah. If if it hadn't been for the internet, I can't say that it would have occurred to me that oh I can go just create things and make them directly mm-hmm. for an audience I wouldn't yeah. have known how to do that otherwise. But you know, but I but I, y- y- your your website was the stories you were sharing about writing and the process was also very inspirational because it is very it is that idea of like you just got to do it yeah. you just have to do it you know there's no. I think people do think there 's some kind of a secret thing that has to happen there 's a um, secret society that like,
3: you, know, you have to learn a handshake and then you get into this next it 's
2: very unsexy. you just wake up and start doing it one day yeah <laughs> and,
3: and I think I always get frustrated by the terminology of like breaking into Hollywood as if there 's like a wall around the whole thing and once you scale the wall and then you 're inside it's like, right. and our experience is like that 's just not how it is. You just start doing stuff and eventually people recognize the thing you 're doing you 're helping out, out people while they 're doing their stuff, and eventually it all kind of works out and you know the people who have been most helpful to me throughout my entire career aren't like the, the powerful people who are making decisions it's the folks who are exactly at my level mm-hmm. doing the kinds of things that i'm doing and um i help them out and they help me out and we all sort of grow together
2: well i want to let's sort of quickly walk through you know like uh, the, all, all of the tim burton years mm-hmm. and how that relationship developed because you know i'm sure if people you just look at that on IMDB, but you wrote uh, big Fish, you wrote corpse Bride, you did the screenplay for Frank and Weenie too yeah. I think right So you've done a lot of uh, you've worked a lot with Tim Burton and obviously Tim seems to be a guy that once he finds people mm-hmm. that really he connects with, he just likes yeah. to collaborate with him a lot. so what how did you guys get together and 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 then the the follow-up question after that just to mentally prepare you is, when you're working with someone who has such a strong point of view, like Tim, mm-hmm. how do you not get absorbed? How does your point of view not get yeah. absorbed by that? So the Tim Burton thing is interesting because people perceive that we must have this
3: great relationship and that we're hanging out all the time. And I've spent uh, probably a total of 60 hours in Tim's presence over the course <laughs> of all of these movies. It's, it's a very, very limited period of time. <laughs> so I had read the book version of, of Big Fish when it was in manuscript form. It was just like a box of pages. And... I had overnight to read it and see if I wanted to try to attach myself to write it for one studio for Sony, which is who had done Go. They just done Go; it hadn't come out yet. And so I read through this book. I was like, "Oh, I get this. I know how to do this. I know everything I need to change." But I totally understand what it's like to have a father who's dying, who you're trying to figure out how you're going to, you know, sort of come to terms with with him. I had made the character my age and the dad, my dad's age, so I could keep the timeline straight. I just knew exactly how to do this. And I'd set up the rights to – so I took it into Sony. I convinced them to buy me this book for not much money. Um, I ended up going off and doing the first Charlie's Angels before that, mm-hmm. uh, which was also during the whole DC uh, debacle. Oh,
2: that's right. You were doing – you were writing Charlie's Angels at yes. the same – Oh, yeah. Your life was – you know, it's funny. It's like, boy, I just want to write for a living. And you're like, fuck, this is not what I too thought it would be. Much. Too much. That's One of the best days on DC was, like,
3: it was a really tense uh, table reading with uh, Dick Wolf. And so the cast is all there. And uh, we're, we're on stage, and I would get a call to the PA. is like, uh, John, you have a call from Drew Barrymore? I'm like, no! <laughs> like, yeah. um, Sorry, guys. So I, back to Big Fish. So I'd, I'd, I'd gotten the rights to this book. I went off and wrote the screenplay. It was really hard. I mean, it was, a, it was a really hard emotional puzzle piece to fit together. But I was really happy with the script. Um, I ended up getting these great producers on it, uh, Jan Jinks and Bruce Cohen. They have just done American Beauty. Um, we'd done another pass. And Sony said, like, oh, this is a really... Um, beautiful, small, expensive movie. We don't make beautiful, small, (laughs) expensive movies. And uh, so they said, well, what if we got, like, a big director? It's like, well, it would have to be Steven Spielberg or somebody. And so we got Spielberg on. So Steven Spielberg was attached to Big Fish for about a year. And so I worked on two drafts with him.
2: Well, how – hold on. How did that uh, – Yeah, I, mean, I was skipping that, over like, that, yeah. So then we went – we just – we needed cantaloupes, so we just picked up cantaloupes. We just we picked market. up yeah, – the exactly. Yeah. We picked up the, the best cantaloupes in, in the whole we got world. A, we got two cantaloupes. We got a Spielberg and then uh, some Frostaflade. Like, e, how, how do you just get Spielberg? You just – they sent it over and they you – did. It was, it was it.
3: literally like that. So basically uh, you know, Dan Jinks and Bruce Cohen were able to take it to Spearberg and so say, like, Hey, we've got this great script. He's like, Yeah, I know how to do that. And uh, so I met with him. That was terrific. <laughs> that was another situation where uh, we were in the editing room on, on the first Charlie's Angels. And so I'm there with McGee. And I, I love McGee, but there, there, were, there were tensions. There were lots of plenty of tensions on, on Charlie, Charlie's Angels. And uh, at one point, uh, there was a call in his office like, oh, hey, it's Steven Spielberg calling for John. <laughs> and it's like, ha, sorry, Mixi, I got to check the call for Steven Spielberg. <laughs> sorry, I got a royal flush. Yes. Thump. There it uh, is. Uh, Steven was fantastic, and I ended up working on a couple other things for him. But we just never really sort of came to figure out Big Fish together with him, and he wanted to do other stuff. So uh, he left, and we took it to Tim Burton. Tim Burton said yes. Um, and, like, a couple months later, we started shooting. So we didn't really work on the script very much together at all. He just like, Oh, I like this go. We'll, we'll make this movie. And so it wasn't until Charlie and the chocolate factory was the first time that I was really writing a new thing for him and had to sort of figure out like, okay, this is uh, a movie I'm writing specifically for Tim Burton with in my head, like, okay, what is going to be Burton ask about this movie? And so I can really write towards his vision. um, And you know, find the things that were interesting to me about the story that would also interest him about the story. I
2: mean Charlie Chocolate Factory had there was a headline it, they this writer, I'm sure, knew what they were doing, oh. but it's a headline that I think about every once in a while and it makes me giggle, which was cause the movie opened very well and it yeah. the headline was uh Depp's Chocolate Factory has tasty opening. Oh yeah, that's a very variety headline. It did yeah. It is and it and it it makes me giggle like a fourteen-year-old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, They're like you guys knew it. You know what you're K-G-O-P. doing. Yeah. yeah, you knew. You guys Little knew it. You, you know, yeah. come on, just, just, just yeah. yeah, come on. But it that at that point, are, are you starting? Do, do, do you feel like okay, this is a partnership that seems like it's going to keep continuing, or are you still are you still working on your own stuff at the same time? How how are you balancing? writing for Tim and writing for John separately. Yeah, I wasn't writing a lot of other stuff for myself. I, I sort of got into
3: a, a grind where I was hopefully trying to write Tim's next movie and working on some stuff for other directors as well. And uh, I wasn't really focusing on sort of what I wanted to do next. And so I, you know, I spent a couple of years where I was just sort of doing stuff for other people. And it's, it pays really well, but you don't end up having anything that's ultimately yours. I was looking at the Tim Burton movies... Sort of back to back, we're getting made, which is great because so much of what a screenwriter does can just get lost. Um, you know, I've written probably fifty scripts, and I've been lucky that twelve of them have shot. But there's so many other movies that are just stuck in twelve point courier on a shelf someplace. Um, and so the Timbert movies mostly got made. A couple of them did, and I did this movie for Tim called Monster Apocalypse, which um, was ended up being just too similar to Pacific Rim. Like we were both like racing to the. the oh wow. Gate. And they were both, like, big kaiju monsters versus robot movies. And uh, Tim's would have been fantastic. Um, but, you know, the Pacific Rim started shooting. And we're like, well, we, 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 we can't. So you how much time had one. you invested on that at that a point? A year.
2: Oh, my gosh. A year of
3: my life. And that's the story you'll, you'll find for a lot of sort of A-list screenwriters is there are a bunch of movies that they've killed themselves on that, that never shoot. And uh, that's the really heartbreaking thing. At least as an actor, if you are in a movie there's a pretty good chance that your movie will come out. Somewhere. Somewhere. A director's movie will come out, but the writer's movie often never does come out. Or if it does come out, sometimes it's vastly different than what you ever intended.
2: God, can you imagine what percentage of... Just raw gold is just sitting unproduced because yeah. of some legal, legal business affairs thing or some yeah I, I, studio head just yeah. like I oh, wasn't in the mood that day or something or studio head changes right. a lot and and
3: particularly because I tend to write these big expensive blockbustery poly kind of movies uh you're, it's a binary choice either you're making it for a hundred million dollars or you're not making it and a lot of times you're just not making it and that was that's heartbreaking
2: well of course because you you. I think that is the other thing that if someone wants to write in the entertainment business and yeah. television is maddening, but film is I, like an order of magnitude more maddening. Yeah. I mean, you you, know, you can spend three years trying to get a TV show made. You can spend 10, 15 years trying to get a movie made. And so y- you're trying to balance, you know, how are you balancing out or what advice would you give to writers for balancing out that idea of like, You know, keeping your artistic integrity intact and your voice intact, which is very important. But obviously, when you're working on bigger budget things, there's a lot of compromise, Mm -hmm. and then balancing out just the business part of just all the shitty business part, which you know, quite frankly, doesn't kind of doesn't give a shit about the art part at all. No.
3: Um, I wish I had like the, the all-purpose advice that can you know get you through it but if I had that advice, I would take it myself because sure. even like this last year you know I'll spend a year working on a project that just will go south or go off the rails and um, you can sort of anticipate some of the problems that are gonna happen like you know okay, it's we're gonna go through this phase of, of a project where everything just gets crazy and people start to doubt their fundamental things. You can be brace yourself and be ready for that but you're never quite sure how it's going to turn and so I guess I've just tried to take, the approach of, you know, I will continue to work on movies where where it makes sense, where I have a vision for what it is, where I think they're actually going to make the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I did spend too many years um, pursuing the movies that were a really interesting idea, but probably would never have the momentum to actually get made. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas like, they may have bought that book, but they're not actually going to make that movie. And so I could write a great version of that adaptation, but they're not actually going to make it. And that's the reality. So I have to sort of balance, like, is this fascinating to me? Is it really interesting enough to the studio that they'll do it? And so if I can find that combination, great. Um, but I'm also just trying to write and do things that are my own thing, that, are, that I can actually control myself. So part of the reason why I went off and wrote a book was so that I could actually write the final thing. Rather than making a plan for a movie, I can just actually write the book. And the book is the finished piece of, of art, the finished piece of material, I'm not waiting around for someone else to say yes to something.
2: Yeah. And that when you, it is so important to, and I think that's why podcasting has been so great too, because it's like as many things as you can do that don't require permission, you really have to do those things to keep yourself spiritually (laughs) fulfilled because the rest of the process, I mean, and, and even when you do get, when, even when something is getting made for you, what is your experience with, you know how does a finished product when something and it's surprising to me yeah. that anything ever does get made, but what is your experience with the finished product lining up with what the script is that you turned in?
3: Yeah, some days it's, sometimes it's night and day, like Go's example of like it's very much the movie I wanted to make. and so you know I was there for every moment of production. I was there all through the editing room, um, through the reshoots, through everything to sort of get it into its final fighting form. Um, Big Fish. I wasn't there for very much of the shooting at all, and yet it's very much the movie I hope to make. Those are the great fantasy uh, scenarios. But like I, you know, I have my name on some movies that I've never seen because I, I, I read the final script of that shot, and it was not at all what I had intended. It wasn't even close to what I intended, and that is just devastating. Because
2: your name, because everyone's like, "Oh, John August wrote that," and you're like, "He didn't. He didn't, though." Yeah. And He's- took a pass at it early on. And then someone else came in. Yeah, and that's- so talk about that. Yeah. That that I think is people don't really understand because it's just they people just don't fully yeah. understand how the process works. So you write a script. Your name is on mm-hmm. it, you know, per union rules through WGA rules. Your yeah. name is on that script because you wrote the first iteration of it. So what happens from there? And how does something get so deconstructed beyond recognition, but your name is still on it and there's nothing you can do about it? So
3: ultimately, um, our system for figuring out whose name should be under "written by or screenplay by, is it's determined by the Writers Guild of America. And I, I'm on the WGA board. I, I strongly believe in the WGA. And it is the best system we've been able to come up with for fairly deciding who should get writing credit for a movie. But it's still incredibly frustrating. So um, if you see a movie and it says, written by, and there's one, one person's name, um Either that person really was the only writer or it went through an arbitration process and the three anonymous screenwriters who read through all the scripts said like, okay, this writer, which is just, you know, it was writer A on the scripts they read. This writer is responsible for, the, for the, the by far the majority of the screenplay that's actually shot. This writer deserves credit. And if there was another writer or another three other writers, they worked on the movie, but their name isn't on it because that's just the nature of how we do the credit systems for this. So if you see somebody listed on a credit and it says story by and then a screenplay by credit that's separate. Then they probably worked at different times. Um, the story by credit person probably was an earlier writer and it didn't end up r- shaping a lot of the story of the, of this, of the final script. Okay. But enough stuff had, had changed along the way that the screenplay credit went to a different writer. I've been the first writer. I've been the fifth writer on movies. Uh, you know, in every case, you try to be as respectful to everybody else who was on the project before you or after you um, but you're you're trying to create the best movie you know how to make, and so that may mean changing things because that's the nature of the movie that they're trying to make right right then.
2: But then, but at a certain point, if a movie gets released and your names on it, and you and you know, you must have had this experience where you're like, oh my god, I didn't that I did. I'm not responsible for this. I don't want to take the heat. I don't want people. Saying like, "Oh, John, Ra- John August wrote a crappy movie because you know it passed through five people's hands and a bunch of studio notes, and no one could agree on anything, and it just—that's just the nature of it." Unfortunately, that is the nature of it, and so
3: you know, I, I think you you know always be generous in your assumptions. Um, <laughs> it, it, I would say is that like, don't assume that that line of dialogue that you hate in a, in a movie was the fault of the person whose uh, name is credited as the writer because you just don't know. There may have been another writer. The actor may have changed the line. The director may have changed the line. There may be some reason why that really dumb moment is there, or the, things edit different. Things things just don't happen sort of the way you hope. If they had released the first cut of Go um, that I saw, I wouldn't have a career. Um, <laughs> I, I was I was physically ill afterwards. Oh no! It was it was it was so devastating. I felt like I had been poisoned. And uh, but then we went back and we sort of looked at what we actually had shot. We sort of got through it. We did some reshoots. And then I was really happy with the movie, and I think people don't understand how much iteration happens uh, to get something to to turn out well.
2: Well, and it's also part of the reason why I feel like I'm very forgiving and supportive. Like when I see a movie, you know, especially a low budget movie, oh, yeah. that you know, if there's parts that suck, then you go, well, maybe they did the best they could. You know, you, there are so many things. That have to come together, mm-hmm. like there's a certain amount of <laughs> universal serendipity that has to befall mm-hmm. the production for us like oh, the everyone was on the same page, and they all had the same vision and and the, it didn't rain the day they needed it to not rain, uh-huh. and all the actors showed up sober, and <laughs> everyone was in a good mood, you know, or whatever it was, yes, whatever sir. magic needed to happen, and it makes me really appreciate great filmmaking so 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 much just knowing how hard it is to even get a group of people to agree in the same ballpark about what's being made. It's also why when you see stories of like troubled productions
3: to take those with huge grains of salt because I've been on like happy happy sets where the movies were terrible and I've been on incredibly tumultuous sets where things turned out great. And the tumultuous sets are sometimes everyone there is obsessed with making the best movie and they may disagree on how they're going to make the best movie, but they're all really they all really care. It's the sets where people don't really care at all that tend to be really happy, um, because like, because <laughs> it's like it's like
2: senioritis, like sure. uh, yeah, hey
0: yeah. you know what whatever yeah
2: that, that was good enough it's fine yeah good, that good enough. enough that was good enough, was good enough. That's yeah fine yeah, yeah whatever I mean how common is it for uh for a for a, a a screenplay writer to be involved throughout the entire process that way I feel like it's just sort of maybe sometimes maybe not it's the
3: nature of the production and the director often and so if you have a director who's really inclusive who wants you there who like is is trying to bounce ideas off you you're going to be around um or if the director is struggling uh they may have you around to sort of be a backstop and to sort of help out those situations there have been movies where um they will fly me in to sort of do some triage and rescue on things where they'll send me into like meet with actors independently of the director. And like, those are really problematic situations. And that's where I'm getting paid, not really kind of just for writing, but also for the psychological aspect of like, I'm a person who can stick into a room with some really, um, big egos and survive and that's just there' have been movies where it's just like usually there's like one eight hundred pound gorilla, but like there's some movies i 've gone into which is like, okay, this is gorilla city like i 'm just you know and uh, you're just you trying to be
2: jane Goodall yes,
3: and so you're just you, they 'll put me in there because like I can take it and I can make everyone feel comfortable like that i 'm hearing them, and that I can give them what they need in order to be able to make it that right. is
2: an excellent piece of advice is that you you know as a uh, as a writer or even a producer. I, I, I did a panel at a class at UCLA for a friend of mine, Tom Noonan, who's as a, you know, he, I don't know if you've done his class before there, but you know, he does a class at, I went to UCLA. I was very excited to do it. I've worked with Tom years and years and years ago. And, and, you know, I was, I was telling them like, you know, as a producer, your job is to basically be a creative problem solver and you have to be a multi-tool. Some days that's, counseling people. Mm-hmm. Some days that's making sure that a writer is communicating with the right person or, or a studio is communicating with another person that it's not, that the sticking point isn't like, well, the agents, the lawyers aren't talking. Yes, So that's freezing up the process. So you need to figure out how to slip in wherever you can and just bridge the gaps and be the connection point. Cause you're the, you're the center of that pinwheel and that, so that that is a very hard job because you have to manage so many different infrastructures and personality types and somehow make it all work.
3: So you describe it like a producer as a multi-tool. What I've always found is that on any given production – and tell me if this happens with TV shows as well – that um, – there's a couple different kinds of producers you need, and sometimes yes. you can stick them in the same body, but often they're they're broken out, and so you need one person who is just that peacemaker who can just like who can get the actor out of their trailer and sort of make everything calm. Yeah, you need one who's just like the general who's basically like making the, the trains run on time. Mm-hmm. Who just like just keeps everything click click clicking. Um, because otherwise it's just chaos. But then you also need that that one guy who's just a little crazy, and I would describe <laughs> it as like you know you, it's like you have a dog, and you have a ball. It's like you see this ball, you see this ball, get this ball, and you throw the ball as hard as you can, and that producer will just knock down everything in your way. Right. Um, that function is a really crucial thing, and sometimes I see um, movies or things that aren't working quite right, and I feel like they never found that that.
2: That ferocious dog. You're just talking about d and D party. You need someone oh, who's absolutely. good at hand to hit. You need a melee. You know, like you need absolutely. someone hand to hand combat to just take the hits. That's right. And, absolutely. You, you need the barbarian. You can. send You need it. a barbarian. You know, you need an archer who can oh, fire yes. long distance. And sometimes you just need someone to go in there with a the club. Yep absolutely. <laughs> and clear it all out absolutely. so that so that the wizard can come
3: in and cast the yeah, spells Yeah. So the wizard is t- tends to be like the <laughs> filmmaker. Like you know, the wizard needs a lot of protection because <laughs> it's, it's, it's very fragile. But you need to have somebody there, and uh, you know, and you know, you got to
2: keep the the wizard healed yeah, yeah every yeah. yeah every production needs a tank like you gotta have a tank, you gotta have a tank. <laughs> well uh, yeah, I, are you still playing are you playing D now at all? i haven't played for a little while yeah. but um you know like i i tend to gravitate toward the rpg type yes. games well you know like the open world like i played the shit out of zelda and i played oh, yeah. skyrim and i started fucking around with overwatch mm-hmm. and you know but i was i i did have like a like a d like an a D&D group, which I recommend for anyone who that's enjoys great. gaming because it's – that's so much about like the that immediate community of like five people that you're playing with. Mm-hmm. And anything where you really have to engage with people mm-hmm. and sort of force your imaginations together is such a great thing to do. But yeah, I still play. And, and you're right that in a production – you know someone has to be the person that's really good at dealing with the studio or the network or yeah. or the cr- or the crew there or the like you said the line producer who needs to make sure the schedule the trains all run on time and or there's a person you know there's also like um uh like the goat like the person that that can attract yes you know like a magnet who can get good talent and that's oh, yeah you know, that's like all they're they a do. good connector but yep. that's that's all they do so yep. that's why when people are watching and they see, like, fuck, there's like nine EPs on the show, it's like, yeah, but they all, you know, for the most part, a couple of them probably just got credits. Yeah, they're, they're managers. To do, somebody's manager, Didn't have yeah. to do jack shit. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, it's because. You need that many different types of people mm-hmm. to pull all of these elements together to make it to make a thing. Yeah, so on those big movies where I get sent in, I'm I'm kind of the cleric. I'm just there to
0: sort of I'm just I'm <laughs> there to
3: sort of heal the wounds, make sure everyone's like.
2: <laughs> you sit down with your sword, yeah. your paladin, and yeah. you just sort of pray by mm-hmm. the. All yeah, right, absolutely. we will heal these wounds. Yes.
3: <laughs> I lay on some hands Make everyone feel Feel better about Are it Are you
2: still playing? Are you playing? I was still playing? And
3: so I i not played for years But uh, now I have a group That we play eh, Once or twice a month All screenwriters uh, It's fantastic We're playing 5th edition So I've DM'd uh, A little bit But I've mostly been Playing So I have a, uh, um, i have a I have a gnome Monk uh, mm-hmm. She's awesome And uh, uh, Named Gilly Greenleaf And I also have A uh, paladin Named Bao Lin So it's, it's, it's fun
2: Yeah and 5th edition's Like quicker right So you can yeah. you, you don't you, you can get together with a group and maybe just like bang out a quick campaign or...
3: Yeah, it really depends on sort of the nature of your DM and sort of how you're doing stuff. But they, they've made some really smart optimizations that sort of feel like the d d of my high school, but like without the charts. And they, they just made some really... Basically, they learned a lot from other games that had come after them, and they, yeah. they, they sort of took the best ideas, and God bless them.
2: Oh, my God. I can't imagine a group of screenwriters playing D&D. Oh, my God. Be we're fantastic. We're, yeah, we're very into characters, so the narrative's <laughs> things are great. And, of course, the best part of the D&D game is when you sit around and give your, each other's character notes. Oh, you have to. Yes, you, <laughs> have, you have to. I didn't really understand. So when your elf entered the pub, did you really – you know, I really just wasn't understanding the motivation behind that. Yeah. Is there anything you think you could go and tighten that up a little mm-hmm. bit? Yeah, sure, yeah. let's go yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to go back in and do, like <laughs> – your revision pass of the well, campaign. The best part is the you know whoever's DMing
3: does the write up of the night for, to plan for the next thing, and so just the, the write up of like what actually happened is great. So it's like it's it's you know obviously the treasure and loot, but it really sort of like what sort of happened story wise over the course of the night. And those are the best.
2: Have you ever have you written like an, an RPG foundation of a movie? No, not really. And so uh, I would love to, but you know
3: I think when you see like the D and D kinds of movies or the Warcraft movies that they try to do, um, it just it ends up being a lot to try to set up, and by the time you've set everything up, it's very hard to get story going. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, no, I, I'd love to. It's just I've, I've never had, I've never been approached with one. Yeah,
2: because it, it's it's how do you establish the world, mm-hmm. and then once you once once the audience understands the world and the rules yeah. of the world, how do you establish the characters, and then how do you get people to care about those characters yes. in a meaningful way? So that then you give a fuck about the quests that they have to do and how many quests are happening at the same time. Is it too much stuff? And then you have to do that in you know two two hours. Well it's,
3: it's basically it's a fundamental difference between a game which is being played and you know a movie or a TV which you're watching people do the thing. And so when you're in the game, you're, you're, you get to be one of those people, so you're in that you're experiencing it firsthand. In a movie or anything that's on a screen, you have to stand back and watch all these people do these things. And that's just really tough. Even the Lord of the Rings movies, you find they really just pick individual characters to follow. And, like, you're with them through this part of the journey. But rarely are you, like, watching a, a group of
2: five people doing anything in that, in that <laughs> whole story. <laughs> what, are some common, what are some common mistakes that young writers make that if you read a script, you go, Aha, I can already tell you, like, you know, is, is it... Too much dialogue, or is it cramming too many characters in one thing, or is it too many goals for the for the you know for the storyline? Um, there's a lot. The big phenomenon of they've read a couple of screenplays,
3: but they don't really understand the format, which is fine. It's, it's, a, it's a weird format. It's it's hard to understand how to write that minimally, but also sort of convey everything. They'll tend to um, they'll have like. 10 minutes of story figured out and then like it'll just sort of churn its wheels for a long time they will they'll forgotten to actually begin a journey it won't be about like a character on on a on a one time thing it's just a bunch of stuff happens Mm -hmm. and so they they have a very hard time telling the story through the perspective of their main character it's it, it ends up feeling like oh you know what? I watched the Godfather too. Or like, you know, we're, we're sharing the same references, but you're not actually telling a story.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think sort of the, the classic tale in television was that, you know, for a long time, you know, people would write, you'd write a spec and you'd send a spec Mm -hmm. in. And, and, uh, for the longest time there was sort of a trope of like, people would try to tackle a Simpsons script. Oh yeah. Because, you know, if you're a hardcore Simpsons fan, you understand the language of the show and you understand what everyone's idiosyncrasies are. So then they'd write a Simpson script and they were just a fucking mess because yeah. it's rather than just sort of write a story they were just writing like and then Barney's burps and then this that. and so it's and how do you wrangle a world that's that mm-hmm. insane And just focus it on a single storyline. Yeah, and finding
3: focus is true in any kind of writing. It's like, yes, you could do all these things, but you can't do all those things because then you're not doing anything. So you have to be very deliberate about what you're choosing to do and really always be aware of what the audience knows at the time. And the the trick of all writing is that you know where you're going, but the reader can't know where you're going. The reader has to be able to trust that you know where you're going, but you can't be tipping that to them. You can't be uh, getting ahead of them. And so... Making sure the experience sentence by sentence, line by line is rewarding because, you know, they'll only give you, you know, a few minutes and then they're like, oh, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to change the channel or I'm going to just stop reading the script.
2: Did you ever take the McKee story structure class? I've never taken McKee. I know
3: some of the, the basic mechanics. Jacinda just and
2: it? I took it together Fantastic. in like 1997. Yes. It was at the Pacific Design Center. We went and, you know, and uh, he was kind of a character. So yeah. it was just like the class was really fun. But I still remember stuff that he said back then mm-hmm. about, you know, not... Not trying to avoid right, like whenever I see jokes in an action line, I get I, I barb a little bit because he railed against that so hard. He was like, and and also writing metaphors in in like a description. It's like no, no, no. You need to you know don't. It was like this, the example he gave was like the sun set like a cat's eye, in the, <laughs> and he was like, how the fuck do you shoot that? You know, it's like make sure that you're very clear about what your action is, and also. Uh, you know that your character has a very clear goal, and that your char- you know, and that you're not spending 20 pages like if you're still setting up your world like 20, 25 pages in, and there hasn't been anything that's actually happened yet, you're in trouble. Yeah. So here's where McKee is
3: wrong. This is where John says, it. "This, this
2: McKee. is great." I'm I love this. wrong. Okay. Is that
3: um, there is the school of thought like you only literally shoot exactly what you can see, and that it's that screenplays are meant to be so minimal that it's basically just like. It's a template for sort of, like, this, is what, this is what we're going to see in the world. If you do that, people will stop reading your scene description. They'll stop reading the action because they, they'll know that there's nothing rewarding for them in the action. So then they'll only read the dialogue. And when people only read the dialogue, they miss most of what you're actually trying to do in the movie. So that's why you have to make sure those scene descriptions are actually interesting. And so, yes, you can't describe the sun being like a cat's eye. You can't use a lame metaphor. But if you have like a great metaphor that actually captures it, mm-hmm. that's great. Um, and I think the ability to use metaphor to describe things to folks is so fundamental. Like I went off and I did, directed one movie uh, called The Nines. And what I loved so much about that process was figuring out how to communicate what I wanted to my different department heads. And so you know, if I'm working with a composer, I'm not going to grab the keyboard and tell him what notes to play. But I can really describe with my, you know, my words, with metaphors, this is what it feels like to me. Mm-hmm. If I'm talking to my... Uh, DP Nancy Schreiber, I can say, okay, this part of the movie, it sort of feels like you get your two beers in on a great July night, <laughs> and with that, she can say, oh, she gets what that is, and she has a whole sense of like what that means in terms of lenses and light and sort of color quality and stuff like that. But like, I don't have to tell her, like, oh, I think it's, I think we're really wide lenses or really tight lenses here. She can figure that out for herself. And so, even back to scene description, if you have the metaphor that gives us that feeling. You know, each of those little things is going to fire those neurons, in the reader's brain It's like, "Oh, I get it. I like this writer. He he values my time, and he's like, he's going to show me something good." Because they'll always there's always the instinct to just like set down the script because anything is more interesting than reading a screenplay.
2: Yeah, and we I just uh, turned in a pilot script, mm-hmm. and it there was there's one character that you know in our heads was very much. Against the way she was written mm-hmm. Which I thought was kind of funny right. about her And so they were saying like Oh this one character comes off really negative, negatively And so I just had to write in the description Like note This is going to come off negatively But she is this type of character Do not think this, yes. think this and and really actually use it as a legitimate guide no, yeah. to explain, you know, and that I think alleviated some of the yeah. some of some of the stuff in that. You had Ricky
3: Lindholm on recently, and she came on our podcast as well, and we were asking her the question about when she was staffing up for another period. Like, she's reading these scripts. Like, how how many pages would she read? And she's like, maybe three. Right. And like, basically, if, if you haven't won her over in those first three pages, she's not going to keep reading because she's trying to read so much. And but. You do have a sense of like what you're looking for, and when you see a writer who gets it, who like who just makes you fire in a certain way, you're so excited. And so, you know, I, I just always try to write something that's going to pe- keep people so excited to keep reading. Um, with Big Fish, you know, I remember talking to the woman who did the visual effects for us, who had to budget all that stuff. And when I first met her on set, she's like, "I hate you." I'm like, "Oh," that's <laughs> and basically, she had been trying to re- finish the script for Big Fish and had not been able to budget like the back, like the last ten pages because she just couldn't get through it. Um, because it was, it was just too emotional for her, oh. and uh, and so you're trying to create the experience with just words on the page. What it would be like to sit in the theater watching that thing, mm-hmm. and um, that was a case where I was able to do that. I was able to sort of like put you in the space if you had just watched this movie and were having this experience. And that's it's largely scene description. That's not dialogue that got you there.
2: Yeah, and and that idea of creating experience and yeah. also thinking about how how you feel and how you kind of, I mean, obviously you can't force an audience to feel any way, but how you'd like them to feel thinking about feeling is very good because that is ultimately what makes you connect to anything. Absolutely. If there's not an
3: emotional connection to something, then it's just, uh, it's just a curiosity. Then it's it's an article, right? It's it's not, it's not, it's not a piece of like filmed entertainment. If it's not making you feel something. Right.
2: And so do you, are, are there things that you still, feel like you have yet to explore. I mean, you how many scripts have you written? 50, probably 50. I mean, do you ever get to a certain point? You go, I just don't know what else I'm going (laughs) to say, you know, but you still have to somehow find a way to force yourself to sit down and write. I'm not running. I'm not running out of like things to say, but I will say, I will confess. I'm getting a little
3: tired of just the format and tired of like the patterns that I just know are necessarily going to happen in terms of just the process. And so I was getting less excited to sort of like write that next screenplay because I just, I just know how to do it. There's a thing called expert rigidity where like you get so good at something that it's no longer challenging for you and stops kind of becoming interesting for you, which is like, you're just in a routine. Like Mm -hmm. you just know how to, I know how to juggle these plates, but like, I'm kind of tired of juggling plates. And so I'll always, you know, go off and try to find, well, what do I not know how to do? Because when you're brand new at something, it's really exciting because it's really hard. And so, um, I like to look for things that I can be a beginner at. And invariably, they do in- involve some kind of writing, but just really different kinds of writing. And that's exciting for me because I don't know
2: if I can do it. Right. And, and also, what can be very surprising is because you have all of this skill set built up over years and years and years, that some of that transmutes to oh, yeah. other areas. We go, oh, wow. Well, I guess, you know, and that, and that's where innovation happens, mm-hmm. where you're really being able to uh, be interdisciplinary and apply things from one area to another area, that's where new things get created. Absolutely. And where you can be the connecting point of like, Oh, like that guy's a really genius composer.
3: That guy's really funny. They could make a funny song together. Um, like I know how to do this from like software development I've done. And that, that guy, I bet he could actually help me out in doing this other thing. And that's really cool when you can sort of make those kind of connections happen. Like the guy who, um, I developed these things called Writer Emergency Pack. It was the first Kickstarter I'd ever done. And that was really cool. I was just really curious how Kickstarter worked. So I made out this product and it ended up being like the biggest card Kickstarter until Exploding Kittens, which just blew it all away. The Writer <laughs> um, Emergency Pack. Writer Emergency Pack. And, uh, but doing that, I bet the guy who, um, ran Na- NaNoWriMo, the national. Novel oh, yeah, 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 month. yeah, yeah. And uh then later years later I ended up doing a NanoRimo and that became my book. And then I met I talked with him on the podcast and now he's doing a live show with me. So it's it's weird, like the people from different facets can sort of come back at you in in interesting ways.
2: NaNoWriMo, by the way, just, I feel like everyone knows what it is, but basically it's, is it December or November? It's national uh, November novel writing month. Yeah. 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 And so it's basically, you have a month to write a book that's what I did. And you just, you write every day and you go and do it and you don't have time to judge it. You Mm -hmm. just sit down and you just make it. You plow through it. And, uh, it's been a good, it was a good framework for me to start
3: working on this book, but also I think it's a good framework for people just to like be less precious about, you know, Oh, if I don't get my publish, it's a failure. It's like, no, like just actually make the thing to try making the thing. And just, you know, it gives you a framework for just like, just go for it. Just try because you're not really losing anything.
2: Precious is ego. When you get precious about something, that's ego. Yeah. But it also, you know, it comes from a good place. You want you care about it mm-hmm. so hard. Yeah. Uh, but it, it can be, I think, one of the biggest challenges for any creative person, not just a writer, is, is, is just being able to create in spite of themselves. Yeah, Because you will there are more barriers that you put up than you might think mm-hmm. that you might put off to like oh the you know you create these m- these magical thinking narratives like well the business doesn't want me and no one likes me and no one this is dumb and everyone i never get it and like okay maybe that's true but you're probably inventing a lot of that and accepting it as fact and mm-hmm. you know like if you can't figure out a way to just write in spite of yourself or create in spite of yourself, then you're just going to be bitter and angry.
3: Yeah. I I never want to sort of sell people on the false promise that like, oh, if you just work really hard, you're going to have success. Because I know people who worked really hard, who worked harder than I have, who haven't had success. Um, And I don't have a good explanation for, for why that is. But I can tell you that there are people who I think actually have a lot of talent who didn't make it. And I can say like, well, I don't think you actually tried enough times. Or that you wrote something you wrote one thing that was really, really good, but you wrote one thing that was really really good and you just didn't follow it up with the next thing. And that's ultimately so I think, you know, what gets you, you know, into a career is like is writing that thing and then writing the next thing and the thing after and the thing after and just
2: keeping it going. Are you ever I guess would you ever be allowed to publish anything that never got made? Like just like, oh hey, I made, I wrote, I wrote this. Someone might as well at least fucking read it because so, I wrote it. Some
3: of my dead pilots I have um, put up online, so as johnhawks. just because they're never going to get made, but they were, uh, <laughs> but they were, they were great writing experiences. And I always, I mean, part of the reason why I started my website, you know, fifteen years ago, was people would ask me these questions about screenwriting. I'm like, well, this is the answer. Let me write it up once and like send you to the link. And so I became like the Googleable link for like how do I do this thing in screenwriting? And so in the library, I, I put up like, some of my dead pilots just so people could see like, Oh, that's what that pilot looked like. And you know, they can read the pilots and, and like it or not like it, but at least they can see how it was formatted, like what some of the pitch documents were like. And so that's been helpful to folks. And I just be helpful if you can be helpful.
2: What, what, what makes a good pitch in mm-hmm. your, in your opinion? Let's just say, I mean, I know film and television are a little bit different, but in general, like oh, in general, a- I think that the same thing holds true for both.
3: It's, Um, if you had just seen something you absolutely loved, how would you tell your best friend, how would you convince your best friend that they have to watch it? And so in telling your best friend, you would say, like, uh, the general sense of of the world, like what it's kind of about, who the main characters are, and then, like, what the really cool moments are. So you wouldn't focus on every little beat of it all. You would just, like, you'd sell your passion about, like, what it is, what it's about, who's in it, and then the basic shape of the story. And that can telescope from being, you know the 30-second elevator pitch to the full, the full 20-minute pitch, but it's mostly you're selling your excitement about this thing that you want to exist, that in your head already does exist. You're just trying to get people to see the movie you have in your head. Or in the case of a TV show, like this is what it would
2: feel like to have this TV show on the air. This is what's so exciting about it. Um, when we pitched the sitcom, one of the things that I did was I went in with a, a stack of headshots, basically, Great. of comics who are all friends of mine, a lot of whom I know are already working on shows, but it allowed them to visually see and just get an instant picture rather than just hearing with words. This person is quirky in this way, this way, like instantly go, oh, okay, 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 okay. And then from a writing perspective, kind of having them in my mind helped me, helped Mm -hmm. us make... You know, character choices that were very specific rather than, you know, so you don't suffer from the problem of like, how do I distinguish between these three or four characters? They all kind of sound the same. Having some sort of visual can be really helpful on pitches because then they can, after
3: you're sort of done with your main party pitch, they can point back to the board and like, like oh, this thing. If, they, if there's a character they want to talk about, they can point to it on the board or point to that whatever that artwork was. It just gives something else for them to focus on and helps them structure their thoughts as you were structuring your pitch.
2: Yeah, and we – so I'm writing a movie with my friend um, Heather Ann Campbell who's awesome and she – I love her approach to it because we just started hanging out and she was like – Let's just think of fun gags mm-hmm. in the movie yeah. and then we'll just connect them. Yep. And I had never really, it seemed so obvious when she said it, but it never occurred to me to write that way before. So we just, we had so much fun coming up with gags mm-hmm. that are now like in a big. Yep. And then so, you know, once we're ready to get to that next phase, it's just going to be like, okay. You know how do we like how do we just put the screws in that, that tie that pull hold all these things together? And
3: so what you're describing is I think my frustration with McKee and some of the other um, screenwriting gurus is that they, they always describe like this perfect template for what a movie is, and that so you have to figure out like so what are like where are we at in the, these arcs and like you know here are the the clothespins that are hanging things off of, and they're ignoring the the real principal thing is like. Is this actually enjoyable to watch at any given moment? <laughs> is it funny? Is it serious? Is it a, is it terrifying? Like what is actually happening moment by moment? And if it's not working moment by moment, you can have the most glorious structure of, of any movie ever written.
2: No one will care. No right. one it won't work. Well yeah, because I'm you know, you know, not every filmmaker has knocked it out of the park every single time. There are some there are some movies made by great filmmakers where you're like, well, it... Aesthetically, it's all there, but mm-hmm. there's just some, you know, there's just some magical thread that just didn't like that didn't suck me in. Yeah, absolutely. And so, but your favorite movies
3: tend to often be the ones which aren't classically great structures, but the people who made the movie knew what they were doing. It they, they, they had like a consistency of vision the whole time through. And so, you know, Caddyshack or uh, or Stripes <laughs> or other things like. They're not always the cleanest movies, but, like, they're really smartly done in sort of how they are. Like clueless is one of my favorite movies. And it's just every moment of Clueless, you could sort of, like, take that uh, – you could take a frame of Clueless and, like, put it in some fertile soil and it would grow into something that looks like Clueless. So it's thoroughly Clueless at every moment. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, it sounds like what you're doing with this sort of big docu-making is it –
2: all those ideas could grow into the shape of the movie that you'd want to make. And right. And that's the right way to start. Um, there was another thing I remember from McKee's class that I'm curious. Is that, I mean, again, I don't know if this is if this is works every time or not. But he he basically introduced this idea that the the value of the story should change, like at the end of every scene. Mm-hmm. It should either go from a negative to a positive or and or and then or then a positive to a negative. It's like mm. the character has a triumph, but then by the end of that scene, there's a loss that then they have to solve in the next scene that they have to turn back into a positive, and then back into a negative, and then back into a positive. Uh I, I don't know if it was for every single yeah. scene, but it seemed like, if I remember correctly, and this was 20 years ago, it was on a micro level, each scene should alternate that way. Then each act. Should have its positive to mm. negative, and then the overall arc should go from one to the other at the mm-hmm. same time. So there were these, like, you know, like yeah. s- s- value structures, building larger value structures, building the overall value structure.
3: And that feels like the kind of thing which you could take a look at most movies and recognize, like, okay, that kind of happens in most, most movies. I think the danger is when you try to apply that to your own writing, it's like, oh, well, this scene has to do this, it has to flip from positive to negative, and so then you kill yourself to try to write that. <laughs> That may not be the best version of that scene. That's math. That's math. Also, so what it is? I, I worry that sometimes we get so obsessed with like, oh, this is structure, and structure is like math, and so we're going to calculate how to make the perfect movie. It's it's never a calculation. It's all instinct, and people don't
2: trust their instincts. I think a lot. Are your is your face burning from the window? It's burning a little from the window. Let, 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 let's, let, let's scoot over. I could just I could see as the sun begins yes. to set. It's, I, people love hearing Mike work. Did you, you know, hear when they, I mean, all that writing stuff was great, but did you hear when they moved the letter to the table? Oh my
3: it was, god, it was transformative. I mean, really, the whole the whole podcast pivoted at that moment. I've you, had to
2: do that. I relate to that. Yeah, that's something that everyone can relate to.
3: I will find. I will say sometimes on podcasts, it is exciting when you you do. Catch those background sounds, and make it feel like oh, they're really in a place. Oh.
2: Yeah, and that, that you know, I always I, I try to leave as much of that stuff in as possible. But sometimes it's annoying. It's like if we yeah, sometimes if it's too much of a lull, then it you know the audience is like okay, no, gotta get, no, no, get on with it. All right, yeah. yeah. So it's like you just got to figure out like how do you tighten it up to make sure you keep the rhythm. So
3: I, I so I've done a weekly podcast with Craig Mazin called Script Notes for that we're on. 330 episodes so not nearly as many as you but a lot of episodes that's a lot and uh, but we're always a skype show and so we're always just talking over skype and the early episodes it was really tough for us to figure out like
2: now i'm going to talk now you're going to that talk. dynamic sucks so hard it's like a conference call but everyone starts to talk at once and then you back off but it's weird like you know over time you get really good at it and so like
3: now it's just like it's so natural for us to be doing that and like There's very little snipping, you know, it's just, it's all completely natural that we're able to carry on a conversation without any eye contact, without any of those normal social cues. I just get to know like, okay, Craig's wrapping up this thought and now it's my my turn and you send those signals.
2: Well, yeah. And I can already, I, I, I have noticed even just in talking to you that you have had a lot of training in this type of a structure because you land a thought. Yeah. Whereas I feel like I or a lot of people will, you know, there's it gets a little loose and then someone else will kind of fill in and then you kind of layer. But you're very definitive <laughs> about and then uh, and now I'm done. And, and to hear that it's you know like you do the same with Skype, it makes uh, all the sense in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Because
3: you, you have to have some clear closure there, or else you're talking at the same time.
2: Yeah. You know, early on in the podcast, people would say like, "God, you know, everyone on the podcast just interrupts each other." And what I was trying to explain is like, look. Or if people said, like, why does this happen on the podcast or why did you ask this or why did you not ask this? And I started saying to people, like, you as the listener, you're just hearing the audio. You're not getting all of the information. There's a tremendous amount of visual visual information. And when you're in front of someone, you see their body language. You Mm -hmm. see where their eyes are going. Sometimes, you know, we just had to learn how to – and we still fuck – I still fuck it up sometimes – But the way people's bodies move when they're about to wrap up a thought, sometimes you just miscalculate. But in general, there is a tremendous amount of visual information, which is why it's difficult for me to – I need that visual information. So I can't do it over Skype or phone or anything because it just completely throws me off. So have you done any, any monologue
3: shows where it's like there's no other guest, where it's like just you talking to the audience? Have you done any No of one would listen to that. So it's really hard. So the launch, the thing I, I'm doing now, that is more of a classic NPR or sort of like a um, – like a Planet Money or a, a startup show where I'm just talking directly to you. I don't it's think anyone so would want to just listen to me talk. It's hard. It's so challenging. Like Tim Ferriss does those kind of shows too. And uh, it's really hard because without a person to talk with, you end up in this sort of weird limbo space where I'm just talking <laughs> to this imaginary person who's about 12 inches in front of me. Yep. And uh, it's – Strange, and they're gagged, so yeah, they absolutely. can't respond. Yeah, absolutely. So you're <laughs> asking these questions, but they're not answering. Um, so that's been uh, one of the, the weirdest things to try to learn how to do because I'm used to, you know, a conversation even if we're in different rooms, um, or a live show, and live shows are great fun because then you have the, the feedback of the audience. Um, but to have this, just this void is so crazy.
2: Well, and so talk a little bit
3: about your new podcast. So the new podcast is called Launch. Um, it is the process of me writing this book. And so about two years ago, I said, you know what, I'm going to just go off and, and write this book. I'd had this great conversation with this middle grade author about adapting his book into a movie. Uh, and said I decided by the end of this phone call, you know what, I think I just actually want to write my own book. And so that night, it was on October 30th, two years ago, I started writing. That became the first chapter of this book. Um, in that NaNoWriMo, I ended up writing six chapters. I sold the book. And at the same time, I started recording interviews with all the folks I was talking with. So, um, my agents ultimately, when I sold the book, the editors, other authors, um, and just sort of charting the entire process. And so I had all this tape and I realized like, well, that's probably a show that feels like a podcast. Um, and so I, I was able to sell it as a podcast and we're doing six, we're doing six episodes, the first four of which are out now. Um, so first episode is just the idea of the book to Getting an agent. Second episode was uh, selling it to uh, Macmillan. Dealing with the editor. Third episode was uh, the cover of the book. Getting that all figured out. Um, dealing, talking to the audiobook guy, which was really cool. Um, nerding out over like the, the grammar and the fonts. Because <laughs> uh, I had strong opinions on all that stuff. Do you use Grammarly? I, I People love Grammarly. I, I, I've not...
2: Gotten into it? You love it. I love it. Grammarly, for people who don't know, is basically a plugin. Mm-hmm. It's an app too, yeah. but it's a, but it's a plugin. You know, I, I have it plugged into Chrome, and uh, it just it in the same way that sp- it's grammar check. It's, yeah. it's the way the way that spell check works, and it's not a hundred percent. just because people speak very colloquially, you know, especially in emails. Yeah, but you know, I love knowing like, oh, I should put a comma right there yes. after. Honestly comma yeah. or you know hyphenating a word or overuse of a word or something you can pull it into the Grammarly framework and it'll give you and it'll it'll get super nerdy on you if you want it to yeah, like if I you want to be nerdy. really grammar perfect you so right. anyway I didn't know if you use Grammarly but I didn't think Well it's so
3: great. what was interesting about this book is that this is the first time i am dealing with copy editors who are like going through and they're literally like they'll challenge you on any given word and so here's an example of something that I faced was let's say you are um, in a room, and at the far side of the room there's a door, and you are moving in a direction that will ultimately take you to the door. You would say, "I am moving blank the door." What would you say for that that blank? I'm moving toward the door. You would say toward. I would say towards oh yeah toward towards beside besides and so they went through and they changed all of my towardses to toward and i i went i went mental on them and so then i had this deep down deep rabbit hole like why do i say towards and it turns out it's a british thing but it's also a colorado thing so where i grew up we say towards and uh, oh my gosh and it's a thing you would never notice until you have to like deal with all the the changes they're making into your book
2: that's so funny and then and then, because also it's there's uh, I remember that, too, from when when my book got edited, and I had to explain, like, look, th- th- this has to feel like me, yes. and this is how I talk, because I want, when people are reading this book, I want them to hear my voice in their head. 100%. And so, if you make it, uh, I'll never forget this. We were, we were up at Hearst Castle, and we were in one of the rooms, and there were these perfectly laid tiles. Yeah. And w r was very obsessive about Hearst Castle obviously, and the the woman who was showing us around, who was great her name's Mary she's awesome, said he actually hated these tiles because they were too perfect uh. and so the the imperfection like the individuality wasn't wasn't there it just it was a very cookie cutter, and it was it was different than other parts of the tile and you know yeah. other parts of the house and i always I always took that as a much grander lesson about individuality and, you know, there is no artistry in perfection. Whatever you do, whether it's writing or performing or whatever it is, you should really embrace those imperfections well, because that's what makes it unique. That's what makes it your voice. And so even though I wasn't
3: going to read the audiobook aloud, um I needed to be able to read those sentences and actually have them make sense. And so sometimes they would make these changes and they'd make them correct, but they weren't correct in a way that I would ever say them. And right. So, so we'd have to sort of I'd rewrite it until it was actually a thing that I could say that was also okay for the book, um, but that part like it sounds tedious, but it was actually amazing to actually have that much attention being paid towards like is that comma really necessary there? And because in screenplays, no one gives a shit about <laughs> like no one will ever challenge you over a comma in a screenplay, <laughs> and uh, they're, they're they're trying to change everything else. Like, does it have to be a laundromat? It like, says laundromat. The movie's like,
2: called Laundromat. Yes.
3: Um, and so that kind of thing was great. But the the most fun part of this whole process that was episode 4 of the podcast was I got to go to the book printing plant where they print my book. And uh, did did you see when they printed your book? Have you visited a, a book No, I didn't plant? I didn't go. It's amazing. And so I went to Harrisonburg, Virginia and got to tour this place and you see the whole process. So they go from a PDF to printing these plates, these big, big aluminum sheets of of big aluminum sheets that have to be mounted on the presses. Um, they're printing the signatures, the individual little packets of the paper. Um, then it's going to the binding line. They're making the case. It was all so cool. I love all the process kind of stuff. And, uh, that was, it was a top 10 experience of my life to see it all come together. Like I would have loved to, like, I, I first watched them do a Clive Kostler book and that was really cool. But then I see the whole process, like for my own book, and like to grab the first copy of my book when it comes off the line. Was I would actually nuts.
2: I, I'm I'm a smeller. Like I would oh, just yeah. love the the machine oil and the ink and everything. Yeah, like that a, would it's be it's a
3: strong smell. It's 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 loud and it has a strong like you know Ink is made out of petroleum products, and so you smell that. But really, what you smell is the glue. It's this protein glue. It used to be made out of horses. Now it's made out of like pharmaceutical waste. And,
1: uh,
3: <laughs> and, uh, ah, they're both bad. They're both. They're both great. <laughs> and uh, and you smell it, and uh, it's it's great. And so I was talking to one of the linemen, who was like, who's the guy who's printing my, my, the pages, and uh, I, I'm like, this guy Larry. is like, so Larry, like, you know, do you like books? He's like, no, man, I hate them. Um, it's like I, I can't even walk into a bookstore because of the smell. Oh yeah, and like it's to just him, too, this is just yeah, it's just too much it's work. He's got to be there it's all work, the yeah. time. Yeah, he doesn't want. To- and so it reminded me of, like a grip who like you know doesn't like movies. Like he loves he he
2: enjoys his work. He makes movies, but he's never gonna watch a movie. See now, why don't they make books that smell like things? You know, uh, like if your book is about a laundromat, why can't it smell like a laundromat? We have we have mis- the technology. Oh, we had shrinky, we had a, we had that scratch and, sniff from our scratch and Sniffs from our childhood. Oh my god! Completely. And you also yeah. mentioned shrinky inks, which I was also a big oh, fan love of. Love
3: shrinky inks. Any little, for, they any still make of, those not melting plastic. They still do make. Uh, they still things. make shrinky inks. They must. oh, they're so good. <laughs> my daughter uh, yesterday was doing. Um, you know what Perler beads are? They're the little mm-hmm. round plastic beads, and you run an iron on them, and they, they, they firm down. We kind of missed them in our childhood, but like they're a big thing now. Do and you know what they are, Katie? Okay, yeah, and so um. So, you know, she had to make a gift for somebody, so she made a little basketball out of them, and I, I was upstairs ironing it to melt
2: it down. Melting plastic, it's good. Ah, uh, yeah, it's and also great to inhale. Oh, I love it, all, yeah. All the time. Um, can I ask you a personal question? Sure. How long ago did you adopt your
3: daughter? So, um, we had her since, she's by surrogacy. So she we was had, surrogacy. She was surrogacy. So, we had her since, you know, uh, there are no accidental gay, gay births. Um, so, we, uh... <laughs> <laughs> just everything's super planned I'm, we're planners so uh no we had her by surrogacy and it, it was amazing and we had the most awesome surrogate in the whole world and uh, so our daughter's 12 now so i've noticed since she was you know three cells big
2: oh my gosh well i'm wondering how how is the process for same-sex couples who want to either adopt or yeah. go through surrogacy is it a lot easier now than it was 12 years ago
3: you know i think you know it keeps changing it keeps getting hopefully easier uh You know what, we have so many friends who have kids by all sorts of different ways and adoption is fantastic as well. Um and kids are just awesome. And I love I've loved being a dad, but I also super love babies. And I think a lot of men sort of admit like babies are awesome and if I could have a job where like I could like take care of a baby for like three hours a week,
2: (laughs) I
0: would
2: be in heaven. I
3: love babies. Just a comfort
2: baby where you just get a baby for a few hours. I mean
3: babies are like puppies, but kinda even better. They're just so awesome and so uh yeah, so, uh, you know, we, I always wanted kids. My husband, Mike, uh, was pro kid once I sort of talked him through the idea, and uh, it's
0: been
2: great. It's been fantastic. That's good. So, how have you balanced the, You know, because what I know from everyone is like, well, once you have a kid, that's, you know, you, you are not number one anymore. You have to focus on the, on the kids. So did that change the way that you write or just the kind of the structure of how you craft? It changes, it changes the
3: structure of your days a lot because I was a person who would, you know, stay up all night writing or, you know, just have late hours. And with a kid, you just can't do that because you, then you're a wreck for the kid. So I had to get much more onto like a more normal, like nine to six kind of, you know, work day. And that was probably ultimately for the best. Like, you know, it, you know, your time becomes much more valuable. And so, like, when I actually had time to write, I was going to write, and I wasn't going to fuck around. Right. Um, so that part was great. I think. I basically stopped swearing. Like even for me to <laughs> even for me to like to throw in that one obscenity right there, that's really unusual. It's it's hard for me to sort of get back into it because it just you break yourself of it. Um, yeah, yeah. But the
2: it, kids have the internet though.
3: They do. <laughs> I know. But I mean, you just don't want to sort of accidentally introduce it too early on. But one of the best things was like she started reading really early on, so like you get to remember like oh man, wow, that's right, books. Books are cool. And so like she's she was an obsessive reader, and I also got to write the kind of book that she would like, and that was cool to be able to sort of. Um, be able to work on something like this. she's not going to see go, but she could see, uh, she read this book.
2: <laughs> well, it, the, the other idea of how do you, I mean, and this is, I guess this is just yeah. part of the, the, the key to success, but how do you motivate when you don't go to an office? Yeah. When your workspace is basically the stomach that you put your laptop on while you're lying in bed. Yeah. And let's say you don't have a deadline you know, it's I, I am a believer that obstacles and and structure are the best and deadlines because things that you have to work around force you to be creative and when you can just write about anything whenever you feel like it, that is fucking really hard. So yeah. how do you uh, how do you motivate yourself or how do you tell people to motivate when? you know they when their bed is their office basically yeah i think you have to get
3: out of bed and 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 find some place to be your office be it the coffee shop down the street or a library or some other place you have to sort of um take time to be selfish and do the thing that you want to do um if you feel like you have to go off and write then you're probably not going to do it but if you really want to go off and write you'll find a reason to do it like if it's the same way like if you love to golf you'll find a way to, to golf uh want to do it and and know that's going to be hard it's like you're not going to want to do it every day but like uh but make yourself you know get into a routine of doing it i think i found incredibly helpful for myself is what i call write sprints which is basically um at the top of the hour i'm going to write for an hour and i'm not going to like check the internet i'm not going to do anything other than work on this thing and after an hour i'm a, i'm free to like get up and walk away if i never get back to it that's fine but at least i will have done an hour and so on twitter i'll uh, go on. I'll say like you know at the top of the hour I'm starting a write sprint. Who wants to join me? Huh. And uh, and it helps because you just know like oh there's other folks who are doing the same thing. So I, I, I've created a social contract that I'm going to do this and people are going to do it with me. That's
2: really great. Yeah, and that is that's really fantastic. Yeah, do you, do you, you must you must get this question if you're doing like seminars or whatever. What if I don't know what to write about? What do I write they about? Just start writing anything because the truth
3: is if you if you just start putting words together they'll eventually form the shape of something that is interesting or if they don't at least you've got some practice, you know, crafting stuff, but you don't have to have the master plan. I think people always just be like, Oh, I'm going to outline my big novel and I'm going to write it." you're never going to write that novel. <laughs> um, you have to, you have to just actually start writing some stuff and then you discover what it is and you edit it and then you just go through it again. Same. Like if you're working on a joke, you like, you have a general sense of where the, the space of the joke is, but mm-hmm. the, ultimately you're gonna have to figure out like, well, where would that actually go in a set? Like, how is it, how, am I, how would I, how to get into that? How would I get out of that? Like, what is it actually all about? Is there a bigger framework for it? Well, at the start you just have a joke. You just have a you have a thing you want to say. Yeah. And uh, don't worry about the context until you actually have the thing right.
2: Well, and sometimes what's helpful with stand up is that if you don't know you have that sort of blank moment if you do it on stage, it's going to come out mm-hmm the way it's supposed to come out sometimes because you didn't think about it. It's just like it was in the moment and that's how it came out based on the relationship that, you know, but as a writer, that can be hard sometimes because you, you know, at least with an, uh, with an audience, you have a, there's a feedback, uh, a bit of a feedback thing. But with writing, it's like, well, you're just, you're just, you're you're writing the audience in your head.
3: Yeah. It's it's the audience in your head. When I started writing this book, I literally did not know who some of the characters were until I was halfway through the sentence. I introduced them. I was, it was just like, just, surprise me and uh, stuff would happen and it became important stuff for the mythology of a three book series. And that's great when that happens, but you just have to trust yourself. Like the stakes are very low. Like, so if it doesn't work, if it, if it it doesn't make sense, whatever, like you haven't wasted that much time. You will waste more time, you know, playing, you know, solitaire on your phone. So just, (laughs) just, just do the thing. And I think people get so hung up about this fear of this perfectionism, this fear of failure and all these other reasons not to write Um, you just got to start writing the thing and maybe it'll be great. Maybe it'll suck, but it's okay.
2: Yeah. I mean, part of it really is just getting into the process of it and just, just, you know, you might write for two weeks and think that everything you're writing is crappy, but then on the 15th day, something comes out of you that would not have come out of you had you not. Mm -hmm grease the the wheels in your head for all that time that it's you know maybe things you write that you can't do anything with now are answers to questions that you haven't asked yet when they do those retroactive studies where they look back at writers
3: and like when they wrote and when they were most productive when they wrote their best works and what they those writers were journaling about at the time like sort of what their their daily diaries were they find there's actually not that much correlation between like oh they were at a a peak of their life and they were so happy and they wrote these (laughs) things uh, the writers whose work you've read, they tend to just write a lot, and their best work sort of made it all the way through to now. And their best, their stuff that wasn't so great, it disappeared. Yeah, that's right. And so you don't, you know, you don't, you don't remember it because it didn't stand the test of time. Also, don't compare yourself to the best things that other writers have ever written. <laughs> and, and so what well, you should aim for that you should aim for like the, the you should aim to be like you know you know better than the best Tarantino, but like don't pretend that if if it's not better than the best Tarantino that's not failure because you don't you're there's all the silent evidence of all the stuff of that author that you've
2: not read well that's also then you're also chasing something else yeah. and I, and I, I I think um you know when if you're stuck on something it's it can, I think it'd be great to go really inward and to get as personal mm-hmm. as possible because that again is where it's where you get really unique and 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 different than anyone else on the planet because no one is the collective sum of experiences that you are. And, you know, and why a show like Seinfeld is so great because, you know, they made the writers go in and like just talk about things that really happen yes. to you and we'll just work those. Mm-hmm. We'll build stories around that. So you have completely fresh, interesting, but absolutely relatable stuff because it's based on very personal experiences and people can tell when things are personal yeah. and people can tell... You know, uh, when things are – it was another thing McKee's class said was, you know, people write hacky when they when they haven't researched enough or yeah. they don't know something well enough. They just sort of write the – you know, like, oh, okay, well, this is the lowest-hanging fruit. Well, the, the classic advice of, like, write what you
3: know, people take it the wrong way. So they'll say, like, well, I'm a butcher, so I guess I can only write about butchers. That's not what it's about <laughs> at all. It's write what you know. It's like what is your internal personal experience? Like, do you know what it's like to have your heart broken um, and for the girl that you've loved your entire life to be married to your best friend, like do you know what that's like? If you know what that's like, then that might be a thing for you
2: to write about because you know what it's, that emotional inner experience is like. Yes, and don't take for granted that you know if you go, well, I'm not going to write a you know a story about a heartbreak because there have been a million heartbreak stories. But it's like yeah, but no one's told yours. Yeah, and you are what makes that different. You are the you're the real commodity. It's not. That thing It's however you express, express that idea. I, one of the neatest things I, I heard was about how sometimes, you know, if a band is stuck and they mm-hmm. can't figure out how to write a song, they will just write the shittiest, mm-hmm. most broad, hackiest thing they can think of. Because what can happen is, in their minds, they're judging before, like, oh, this is really mm-hmm. hacky. But because they have a specific set of skills... It actually doesn't always come out hacky, or it leads them into a direction that they hadn't thought to go before because they had put up that wall. Absolutely, and, and they need and, to be playing, free.
3: Yeah, exactly. And playing against that thing that they were they were so afraid of, they actually discover the thing that they they really love. The other thing I will say is that I am ha- I will happily write out a sequence. I've always been happy to write out a sequence. So movies that we we make. Or TV shows, they're shot out of sequence. You shoot like you know, shoot scene three and right. scene seventeen. I will write that way too. And so if I don't, if I'm writing from beginning to end, and I get, sort of get to stuff like I don't know what to do next, I'll happily write that moment in the third act or the second act or whatever. I'll write whatever is interesting to me on that day because so often there'll be a scene that you, you, is just torture for you. <laughs> Skip it and and write something you actually want to write because ultimately you got to write the whole thing. And so even if it's like prose. If there's a section you don't know how to do, just skip ahead to something else. Just leave notes for, like, what that's supposed to be and write something
2: else because you got to just generate the material before you have anything to edit. Also, the other thing that you're excited about writing might help inform the thing that you can't write. So it almost becomes like a Sudoku puzzle. Totally. Like, oh, I needed this number before I could it, get that number. It is. It's, you know, literary Sudoku is what you're, you're, you're
3: trying to do. <laughs> and, so, and so sometimes I just don't have the energy to write that t- difficult scene. So, like, I'll write the thing that's kind of basically people walking through doors. Like, it's not crucial stuff, but, like... I can get that
2: done. It's like a thing I can scratch off the list. Do that thing. That's great. It Now, the book, uh, Arlo in the Valley of Fire, is out now. It'll be out. It's out now, yeah. Yeah, uh, by the time the podcast goes yeah, out yeah. now. Uh, and then your podcast launch. Yes, and so um, I think we probably will
3: have wrapped all six episodes by the time this is out, so you can binge them all. Um, is your website still up, by the oh way? Oh, my God. JohnOx.com is still, has- still up. Yeah, so uh, JohnOx.com and... Uh, Script notes is the Screenwriting podcast I do So you can find that on the site Or just iTunes Or wherever you find podcasts
2: So ever since You know Now it's been a little bit of time Since I Uh Changed the name of the podcast from Nerdist to ID10T, which yeah. is something that's happening tomorrow that you don't know about yet. But by the time this airs, this will happen. So, I'm it's so a, excited. Yes. So the podcast is, is the name of the podcast is changing. It's not. So it's not that I want the podcast to be different, but you know, something that I've been asking. Well, you people, built an empire, so you got to you got
3: to make sure that the. I, 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 we haven't talked about your empire building. That's not I think a,
2: that's, big, I don't know. I,
3: that's the thing I've just been really impressed. Like you actually had a vision for like this thing that you're doing, but like there's more stuff that could be sort of under that general umbrella. So, uh, nerdist industries and everything you built that. That's really
2: cool. Well, I appreciate that. It, you know, it just, I don't know, it, it, it was just finding ways to connect, not trying to do everything at once was mm-hmm. very helpful and starting something, kind of getting a feel for it and then getting excited about, well, how can this evolve? And then if this if this evolves or it's something that feels a little disparate, how does it connect? Yeah. And does it connect? And is it complementary? Oh, it is, or no, it's not. And so, uh, yeah. And so that, that part to me, you know, my, my career is very heavily based on SimCity. Yeah. Okay. Because I loved SimCity. Yeah, you get to plan and organize. Well, you plan and organize, but you're also building and you're connecting and you're and and and, you know you're establishing little areas that then all sort of connect together and form this unified organism. Did, Did you always? I always built out the subway too big too soon. Did you- <laughs> I, <don't- laughs> I always I always forgot to send water to people. Yeah, that was bad. So like, like, what know? is happening? This a- oh, oh, the little, oh no I waters. forgot to put water pipes yeah, under there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, or you'd get to a point where you'd like you'd you'd put in fucking roads and you'd put in the electricity and you'd put in the pipes and you'd put in a bus station and a highway and no one would show up. You're like, how do you attract these people? What do you need to do? Yeah, you need heavy industry or something. You like, need heavy industry, you need to, zoning, I found out. You yeah. need zoning. You need to put enough residential with enough industrial with some commercial so they can have businesses, yeah. then a school, then a police station. But i, a I library. build them these
3: nice parks and they wouldn't be happy. Oh, you
2: sitting. And- <laughs> oh, you're never happy. <laughs> it sucks to be a politician. That's that was the only part about yeah. that. When it starts getting so into like when you have to tax people, like yeah. my classic Sim City move was um, lower taxes. Oh, lot. for a while, yeah, yeah. makes people really happy. And then you get people in, and then you jack them up as high as possible, you know, so yeah, before some money. everyone moves out, then you still make a lot of money, and then you just, you know, kind of do yeah, that on yeah, repeat. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a very Banana Republic kind of way to, to run things, but
2: yeah. <laughs> and then occasionally, you know, when you're tired of it, you just send in a Godzilla or a Typhoon oh, yeah, or something. Oh, yeah, smash things down. And wipe, wipe it all up, I start over again? I always build a prison out on the island. It's always fun to do that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I forget that we're almost exactly the same age, so that we our reference points and our early gaming experiences were probably exactly Mm -hmm. the same. Absolutely. Um, So, one thing that I've been asking people is like, you know, in in a in a culture where things can be feeling, you know, sort of toxic, we're focusing on a lot of negativity and toxicity. And of course, there certainly are negative and toxic things happening, but. It's not the full scope of the world, I don't think. What's, what's something that you're excited or joyful about right now that doesn't have to be related to anything that we've talked about? Um, I would say uh, I was in a really dark
3: place. So uh, the short version is uh, last year we moved to Paris just for the year. And so our daughter was in sixth grade and we did her sixth grade year there because I'm a writer and I could, I could work in Paris. And so I missed all the election stuff and all sort of the, just the, the doom of that. And But I would feel it just on this weird time delay. And I was feeling really down. And then we went to the Women's March in Paris, and it was just amazing. And to see, like, oh, there are people who, who care, and they still do. And so I think the the thing which has been giving me sort of most hope over the, this last year is uh, just to see that there's people who will show up and do things. And, uh, you know, you see some people live, live events we do for script notes, or you see people out on the street. But you don't sort of know what they're into. But then we see, like, a big crowd together together. Um, it was the first time I've been excited to see big crowds. I'm always like I'm, I'm always afraid of big crowds, and then to see a big crowd uh, together just to uh, to push for something was really cool. So that's the thing that sort of gives me uh, gives me hope and joy.
2: I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, and it, it is nice to see people doing things in the real world too. Yeah, because you know,
3: because we're because we're just Twitter avatars. Of it, course, anymore. yeah,
2: of course, and also. You know, in people's busy lives, you know, maybe that day the only thing they had time to do was tweet. Yeah. And it it is very hard to set aside time to then, you know, get in your car, go park, show up, be passionate – you know, stand up for yeah. something you believe. And that is a very, you know, like it, that's a lot of steps and it's yeah. more steps than, than some people will take. Yeah.
3: And I'm an Eagle Scout, so I'm, I'm, I'm super <laughs> patriotic. I'm super, like, I, I, I just so strongly believe in the ideals of the country and to sort of, to see people, um, out there, um, pushing for those ideals is great. And it just sort of gets me back to that moment of, of sort of why we're all in this country together. So, uh, that's felt really good to me that, that, that sense of principles, um, and reminding people what the principles are is, is important to me.
2: Well, I've absolutely enjoyed having you on. Oh, I, thank it you. It was so great. And, and, and also, just, oh, these years just fly by. That's it's me. like I see you and I'm like, oh, my God, I don't think I've seen Jack like four or five years. <laughs> yeah, that's good. But I'm glad that you are able to come on the podcast. And congratulations on the Thank book. you. Thank you. And everything that you're working on and, and, and raising a – you're on the precipice of the teen years. Yeah,
3: I feel like I'm in the teen
2: years already. Where it's where – it's, you know, it's it's a rough time to be a teen with yeah. all the, the internet's out there. It's a rough time to be a teen. So, uh, uh, good good luck to that. That is a that is a that is a story that I'm sure will manifest at some point yeah. in your life. No, it, it's it's great. I mean, she's an
3: awesome kid. But like, you know, kids at that, that age, they're they're. Challenging, because every, everything about their body is changing in ways, and uh, their minds are changing.
2: So. Well, their, their brains are forming, and they, it's when they first start vying for independence. Yes. And who am I? And what is, you know, right when their hormones kick in, their identities start to form. They're st- you know, they yeah. will form for, like, the next 15 years, but... But they really, you know, like, and and you know, unfortunately, you might get in the way of some of that because yeah. you're a parent. and You want to protect your kids, absolutely.
3: And then her pushing back is part of the nature of you know development. So
2: uh, <laughs> just try to remember that when, you, <laughs> dude, like, when no, there's a there's a
3: reason why this is happening. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's <laughs> yes, okay. So you snuck out and you came back at six o'clock in the morning. This is just you expressing your independence. Yes, Everything yeah, in a safe fine. way. Yes. yes,
3: great. In Paris, uh, she could like, take the metro by herself. She could like scoot herself to school by herself, and. That kind of independence was fantastic. And so we're trying to find ways in L.A. that she can be independent. It's just tough. Yeah, There's it's distance, not quite distance, the same. Yeah, distances are further, and it's challenging.
2: Yeah, and our public transportation system is not quite as centralized. It is not. So, And the city is just too big and too spread out. Yeah. Uh, well, come back on again. Please. I would love to see you. Uh, is there anything? Is there anything you that you're working on that you want to plug or, or talk about or no, or, just, or just spoil that you're just, working just, on?
3: Just spoil? Uh, no, I think you know, I'm. I have two more Arlo Finch books to do, and so that's one of the real challenges of selling a three book series is that it's a book a year, so it's like it's like a TV show where like you've got to come up with the next one. Uh, it was it was that's it so was so much pressure. It was so much pressure, but that's how it is because I, you remember what it's like. You probably had a, a favorite book series, and like sure. you don't want to wait, you know. Two years between books. No, you'll no. you'll outgrow out them. So I got I got to do that.
2: You know, there there is there's probably some middle ground between Stephen King and uh, and George R, R. Martin. Yes, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm trying to find that, that that middle territory. It's good to see you, John, good to see you, August. sir. Thanks. Enjoy your burrito. ID 10T scanning
0: complete. Enjoy your burrito.